In this episode, we get closer to our first Opera Fall Voices commission, Sweet Potato Kicks the Sun, music composed by Augusta Reed Thomas and story by librettist Leslie Dutton Downer. Hi. Hello. <laughs> we are with the Santa Fe Opera Key Change podcast. Oh, good. And one of the things that we wanted to do was just get some pre and post workshop reactions from people and find out what you're expecting to see. I did listen to Augusta's compositions on Apple Music, and then I went and listened to Nicole Paris beatbox on YouTube, which was very fun. I was doing some cleaning around the house, and I'm like, wow, this is energizing. (laughs) And I'm here because I was actually able to attend the Sandbox a year ago and loved it, and they said I ought to come back. And, you know, spoiler alert, they're having so much fun. I'm always interested to see what new things are happening on various artistic fronts and especially when things are multidisciplinary and things from two different areas that have not combined before are combining because that's often the place the most exciting things happen. I'm super excited about it because the title seems really weird and I don't know what I'm getting into. And I'm a huge fan of Nicole Paris so I wanted to come see. Have you seen any opera? I have some experience with opera. My parents were opera subscribers when I was younger and they dragged me to a couple and my step mother was always making me watch opera with her when it came on PBS. I've actually seen two operas this year at the Lyric. One time I got free tickets and the other time they were like $15, which is why I went. Yes, uh, in Boston, uh, Boston Opera House, just once. Uh, I don't recall what the opera was called. So if I say to you opera and beatboxing, does that sound like a combination that feels like it goes together or? As long as it's organic, yes, absolutely. I just really feel like beatboxing and opera aren't in the same room. Like that just seems really strange to me. So this is probably gonna be some really avant-garde piece and I'm looking forward to it. I'm here to learn and I know that this is a perfect um, laboratory to find out what a cutting edge artist is doing with her work. And what about beatboxing? Oh, I grew up in the 80s and 90s. So I've listened to a lot of it and love it and think it's fantastic. And I think the greatest art comes when artists from all genres come together. So I'm very excited. Last season on Key Change, we introduced you to Opera for All Voices. Seven opera companies working together, resulting in four commissions, two workshops right around the corner. But what all is this? Is it just about music and words? No. We have to dig a little deeper. Opera for All Voices. What were we thinking? We were thinking grand. How many stories are there? Too many to count. Can you change the world through opera? Can we truly represent all voices in opera? All voices? That's a lot. How many more seats do we need to add to the table? We're going to need a bigger table. I'm Brandon Neal with the Santa Fe Opera. And I'm Andrea Fellows-Walters with the Santa Fe Opera. And this is Key Change, a podcast taking you inside opera for all voices. An initiative that began with commissioning and presenting new work, but has grown into something different. This season, we take a deeper dive and discuss the topics and questions that are shaping the future of opera in America. Welcome to season two of Key Change. For those of you listening for the first time, we suggest that you go back and listen to the eight episodes that make season one. But if you don't have time for that, we're okay with that, too. But please go listen anyway. Well, if not now, at some point. Yeah, like tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) So season one, Brennan, let's rewind and catch everybody up. 
Well, we talk to our composers, our librettists, our friends throughout the industry, our consortium partners, and a few other friends along the way. We talk about money. We talk about hopes and dreams. We talk about the whys and wherefores. We talked about the expansion of the education department and what it really means to be in today's opera world. We laughed a lot. There's no cries, no tears. It's a happy season. We are joyful. Every now and then, we refer to Opera Fall Voices as OFAB. <laughs> we also get into time machines. Lots of time machines. We have magic wands. Brandon, that's season two. Excuse me. But wait, Brandon. What is Opera for All Voices? Andre, you know this, but for our listeners, let me break it down for you. Opera for All Voices is a consortium of seven opera companies. The Santa Fe Opera, the San Francisco Opera, Seattle Opera, Minnesota Opera, Sarasota Opera, Opera Theater St. Louis, Lyric Opera of Kansas City. Is that it? I think that's us. I try to get it all the way through. Sometimes it feels like there should be more companies. I feel like there should be more. But you know, these companies have come together to create new chamber operas that respond to and reflect the communities they reside in. It's been a real crazy ride. We've had a lot of ups and downs on this journey of ours, and we're just going to keep on trucking. It's been a whirlwind. I love it. Yeah. Now, in season one, episode three, you met Augusta Reed Thomas. Gusty, the composer of Sweet Potato Kicks the Sun. Maybe it's too personal to say, but, like, music is actually my entire life. That's all I do, <laughs> you know. And Nicole Paris, her muse, a world-renowned beatbox artist. So when I beatbox, I'm actually telling a story. If I'm down, I will beatbox something slow, you know. Or if I'm happy, I go, boom, 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 you know, just get real excited. Now you're going to meet Leslie Dunton Downer, the librettist for Sweet Potato Kicks the Sun. And really the person that conceived of, imagined, and has realized the whole world of Sweet Potato. So this world that Leslie's created, the title itself is a provocation. Very much so. It's like, what is that about? Sweet potato kicks the sun. What's a sweet potato? Who kicks the sun? And why why did sweet potato kick the sun? And where do we go once the sun's been kicked? Seems like it's going to be a little dark. Well, yeah, because there's no sun. Some mystery, some magic. Some allegory, because... It is opera, after all. So let's break it down a little bit for our listeners. What's the story? What's the journey? Well, it's about a character named Sweet Potato and her best friend in their reluctant journey through their world and trying to... Set things right. Set things right. Set things back in motion. After someone literally kicks the sun. Well, it's in the title. We know who it is. Well, it's Sweet Potato. Okay. Mystery solved. (laughs) But something else happens after Sweet Potato kicks the sun. Sweet Potato makes things worse. Oh, of course. As every character in any opera does, they make things worse. Uh I think the wonderful thing about the show is that it really holds into the idea of what community is. And who's your family. Who's our family, Uh how we see our world. And who we are as people. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot for people to discover. It's deeper than it sounds. Allegory always is. Truth. So let's get back into that time machine. Okay. One of our favorite things to do. Travel back. Let's do it. But not too far back. No. To 2018, which feels like yesterday. Because it kind of was. Well, it still is. (laughs) (laughs) But not for our listeners. That is true. It's 2019 for them, so... So way, way back in 2018. Yes, the back day in of the, the olden days. <laughs> the day of the Sweet Potato Kicks the Sun workshop. Yes. In Chicago. Uh-huh. All right, Brandon, back into the time machine. September 2018, Chicago. Here we come. <laughs> Key Change Season 1 opened with the following words. In January of 2016, dot, dot, dot. And now we are? In August. No. I know. September. September what? 2018. And what is happening today? 
We have our first workshop, babe. From January 2016 to September 2018, an inchoate thing coming together is now a workshop. I'm two years older. <laughs> Can you believe it? Looking good. Yeah. yeah. I wish our viewers could see how good you look. Mm, check out my Instagram. Oh, viewers, I did it again. Listeners could view. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> see what you mind. Okay. Yes. Okay, so here we are. Yeah. The workshop. Mm. Okay, so... Opera for All Voices, we set out to do what? Create new chamber operas that resonate with our communities. With an eye to? With an eye, oh, to diversity, inclusion, equity, high artistic excellence, beautiful music, and to portray, you know, something new, something fresh. In the last two days, in these rehearsals for Sweet Potato Kicks the Sun, what have we seen? It's been a whirlwind. And it's been all of that. Oh my gosh. Gusty and Leslie so took us at every word. Not I mean, just at our word, at every word. I feel like I'm in Alice in Wonderland. I fell down that hole. Oh, I wasn't in an just, Escher print. You went down the hole. Okay. What's an Escher print? <laughs> you know, the little stairs and the stairs going the other way and then the stairs going the oh, other way. Oh, that's what that's called? The Escher. Yeah. That's Very the fancy. artist. I know. You're welcome. I still like the rabbit hole. Okay. Fine. You're in your hole. Thank <laughs> I'm you. on the stairs. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so, Andrea, I think. A lot of people want to know. Do you think it's scary to have a workshop? Yeah, because you're not ready. Yeah. I mean, it's not a finished product. No. And and you're still feeling precious. I mean, I can say this from firsthand experience. You're still thinking things through. You may be not convinced of something yourself. You may be putting something out there and taking a risk. And, And in the instance of our initiative, Opera for All Voices, there's so many risk propositions. We've asked for these teams to do a lot. And in the case of Leslie and Gusty, they've taken up every single one of those challenges. So yeah, I bet they're, I bet they're a little nervous. The morning of the workshop, the first look, or rather the first listen with a live audience of their new work, we were able to sit down with composer and librettist, the creators of music and story for Sweet Potato Kicks the Sun, which will premiere in Santa Fe. Our newly minted dramaturg for Opera Foil Voices, Corey Ellison, was able to join us as well. Brandon, I always thought workshop was a strange word for what we do as we are developing new work. Yeah, it's kind of a a real formal way to discuss a very integrated creative process. Right. I mean, that's the intent for the first time to put together all of the creative forces, no costumes or scenery. So that's really down to the, the bare bones of what the thing itself is to really talk about it and think about it. Well, and like in many workshops pertaining to operatic work and other theater works, there is a performance at the end. So, But sometimes it becomes about the performance instead of the process. And, and with Opera for All Voices, I you know from the very beginning when we were talking to composers about this project, we said, we want you to know up front that the workshop will be a true workshop. It will not be a showcase. Right. The process is what's important. At the end of the day, the performance that really matters is the premiere. Right. And the work that needs to be done needs to be done in said workshop. So that thing can sparkle. Yes. When it gets on the stage. Shine. So hello, we're here on the day of the workshop of Sweet Potato Kicks the Sun with Augusta Reed Thomas and Leslie Dunton Downer and Corey Ellison. You two have known each other a while. We have. We don't need to say how many years. It includes the digit three followed by a zero. Okay. (laughs) So now we know. (laughs) At least. (laughs) Dot, dot, dot. What is it like to develop something completely new with somebody that you've known for so very long? Well, it's... It's not really new, is it? Because yeah. you're already you already have something in your history of collaboration to draw from. So it feels more like a continuation of that. 
So I don't want to say you hit the ground running, but maybe something. I would say we hit the ground more than I. I would say we hit the ground skipping, sprinting <laughs> yeah. at a thousand miles per hour. <laughs> frankly, because I mean, it was just like we had to get the piece done and um, overnight, basically. Yeah. Well, there was that. Leslie um, actually mentioned yes, something last night that I thought was charming and, and fascinating, which was that when Gusty called her into this project, it was it was just like, will you will you do this thing? Will you go on this journey with me? You were telling me that. Yeah. And it was just like a leap of faith for you. In a way, but since I, I know Gusta, I mean, we have telepathy, basically. It's like a composer's sister to a librettist. So, yeah, with Augusta, it's it's different because we both made our first music theater piece together. And since then, many, many other kinds of works together, short works, long works, works that remain in, in drawers and that didn't remain in drawers. And I would say when she called and said, do you have an idea for me for a music theater piece that you could write as of today? Start writing. And could you finish it in like three weeks? Could you do it immediately? And, and by the way, everything and do it for me. <laughs> she said, there's a sandbox in three weeks and it would need material for that. And I think I said something like, well, I don't have anything in a drawer. And if I did, it wouldn't necessarily be right for you. She didn't tell me at all what the resources were for this piece. She didn't say there's a beatbox for that has to be in it. And there's this and there's this. So I just said, oh man, at the time I was in rehearsals for a piece that was premiering within a few weeks in Germany, I was exhausted. <laughs> I said, let me just sleep on it and see what happens. And then the next morning I woke up and I had two completely formed ideas in my head that were like little pearls. And I wrote them up in like a paragraph each. And I sent them to her. And one was dark and one was light and frothy. And I had no idea what it was for. I mean, I get a call from Gusta and then things happen on a certain plane. It's like an astral plane kind of thing. The next morning I sent her the paragraphs. I was, you know, seven hours ahead. She woke up. I got back from rehearsal at midnight. Then she said, can we Skype? And so I was a zombie. And she said, uh, okay, the one that involves this character in this situation, I, it has to be for me. That's the one. And then Which is basically the idea of including a trickster. It's drawing on very archaic stories, but also archaic aspects of human existence. I think the trickster figure, it's about appetites for sex, for food, being always hungry, wanting to destroy things, wanting to break things wanting to have the bodies of everyone around you to be them, to make love to them. Mm -hmm. Just complete breakdown of boundaries. And interestingly, when you break down all these barriers, you also create the conditions for an extraordinary form of creativity, which isn't about ideas like, oh, let's create something where it follows these boxes and it has to do with this and it has to do with this. This is a kind of creativity which is so extreme. You destroy, and then out of that comes something really new. And I think there are certain periods in history where this kind of trickster figure, this kind of trickster story abides and it finds yes. purchase. And we're in a moment like that now. And so I don't think I was consciously thinking, oh, uh, we're in this dire you know, situation, not just in our country, but in the world right now. I mean, it's, it's a strange time. Kids growing up today are apparently growing up with a sense of danger and fear about things not being, you know, not safe in a, say, in a city, but also just in the world environmentally, you know, people feel insecure. It wasn't a conscious decision, but when you make something and it comes from the inside out and it feels true, you stick to your, your guns on those things. So I, that would be something for me that would be very important. But for Augusta, I knew in my bones it would be perfect for her. I was 
talking to Corey about this last night, but I always uh, had this idea initially of a, of a tabletop, like a mesa, and then going into a canyon, and then coming out of it into a mountain. And then we, we decided to move this particular shape, which is inspired by the Orphic descent right. and the notion of catabasis from, from Greek, which is, I think, primordial to excellent drama. We transpose it to an urban setting, so we now have an, a rooftop garden. The point is, though, you're and higher. urban canyons. Mm-hmm. The street can be yeah. a canyon. And then you have a cellar space. Yes. So you have, the, you have this chthonic below the surface of the earth area, which is the space of Persephone. It's the story of winter, of waiting for something to come back and be born. And when it, when it does come back, it's this great relief because you're back where you started, but it's also, it, to be good, it should be fresh and new. And you've created that relief moment in the piece, in this wonderful, I don't want to give away anything. Well, yeah, I think everyone's good at that moment of resolution and return. I mean, Hollywood, for example, has it down to just like they, it they is have a machine. Yep. Mm-hmm. I think what's harder to get is that you return to a place that's familiar, feeling the wind down the closure and, ah, you know, home again. Mm. But in our world, I think right now, it's you want to be back, but you also want to know that there's a promise that it won't, you know, you'll be back with fresh terms of a new beginning and you're not going to be... Conditions have changed. Some, some, some very elemental, primordial things have changed so that the next, whatever comes next, will happen in a completely... So it's your rainbow it's sort, moment. Sort of like a, I was just going to say, it's, it's kind of like a Götter Demerung and mm-hmm. the Wizard of Oz put in a blender, you know, it's like... this theory that like all opera is on some level mythological, whether uh, the creators even realize it or not, because a story that wants to sing... Right, it, once there's music, right? ...has mm-hmm. mythological resonance, whatever it might be, you know. That is... It's so important, this idea that anything that's worth singing about, if it's that big, it should be more than an everyday sort of level of importance. And if that, if that's true, it probably does have mythological roots because those are things that define our existence over more than a few minutes. It's something that's very deeply human. And I know from knowing Gusta's music and how she thinks about uh, the relationship between language and music that... She's not going to be inspired as my composer for words to, to write something that's just uh, like we we basically have these uh, shorthands for this, like the pass the salt kind of lines. Right. Like, you know, why have an aria about passing the salt? What I like about this piece and why I, I think it's a great libretto for Augusta is everything that's happening in this piece is dire. <laughs> there is a intergalactic levels of calamity. You know, there's yes. all sorts of problems going on. There's the need to correct those problems. There's joy, there's despair, but everything is worth singing about. So you were invited to the astral plane again with Leslie, and here's this text. And what happened when you started reading? I have a sense of it because we've talked about it before that you probably jumped out of your seat. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that interests me a lot about writing music is to imbue the music with material, like ideas, like chords, harmony, rhythm, rhythmic syntax, uh, motive. My music is full of like that stuff, pitch harmony. You know, I'm sort of crafty in that way. So I want to have something that I can make material out of, not just have sort of a long swash that goes Mm. for 20 minutes and 
there, you know. So this piece is incredibly animated. I mean, across its 75 minutes, there's so much different character. Yeah. You have something that's timeless and otherworldly, and then you have something that's kind of haunting, and then you have something that's, you know, completely playful, and then something that's scattershots, you know, like running fast notes, and then you have mixed meter-ish, you know, you have lots of different kind of, you can't tap your foot to it because I keep changing the rhythm, and, and then things that are like right on the beat, they're just grooving, and then things that are floating. And all of that happens in such a short amount of time. And I like the the sense of color that that brings. You know, 14 months, we're still 14 months out. There's a lot to fix and change and improve and obviously all kinds of things. But it was fun to write and also to make it so that the 75 minutes is not just like, while there's an enormous amount of character shifts, this scene is doing that and that scene's doing this, there's an enormous amount of integration. Well, yeah, what I find really interesting about the score is it's just incredible. You open the pages of the score and you start reading it. Before the rehearsals, what I found so interesting is that Gusta made a, a seating plan for the orchestra to be on stage and the singers are yes. all on stage. So vocalists and musicians are all on stage together. And if you look at the score and you see how a percussionist is playing marimbas at a certain moment and the marimbas are kind of talking, as it were, mm-hmm. and then you see a vocalist is delivering sounds and sometimes those, those sounds are not necessarily words, but they can be expressive syllables, say. Then you start to watch these shapes changing across the score and moving. At some point... And you don't have to take drugs or be sleep-deprived to have this experience. At some point while going through the score, they start to kind of just, they kind of float into each other. They merge, and you realize, oh, my God, Augusta Reed Thomas, you little devil. I realize, like, she's the trickster because what she's done is she's, she's kind of destroyed the concept of okay, the vocalists are in, you're in one world and the musicians are in the pit. It, it is a very interesting thing to see a score become almost alive. When I got first time the, the score from Augusta to sort of uh, get a sense of what was happening, I flashed on this idea of Kurosawa's films because oh. why? Because he loves when there's a battle scene or people are just talking, he loves to have dust or feathers or yes. something is moving in the air. There's stuff flying and he always talked about it as this energy. But it's in the atmosphere. It's like, it like, literally they'll have dust flying up or feathers or pieces of, you know, some hay or whatever it is moving in the background. Everything is filled. And I feel in this piece, it's something like this. We have this world where the whole room is filled with this sound sort of sculpture in pieces. And sometimes it's voices, sometimes it's instruments, sometimes it's both. And at moments they can feel like confetti of joy just coming down on you. And then they can change color and shape and move in a different direction. It's uh, truly mysterious. I listened very carefully on some conference calls to the Opera for All Voices team. And I took really careful notes about like the things that every company kept saying and what was coming up. And I still have my pages of notes from those. One of the things about Opera for All Voices and reaching into a whole diversity of kinds of voice and kinds of people and kinds of artists. And, you know, I've just spent a year of my life doing it. And and so like, it's really important and really beautiful and a great mission that the Opera for All Voices initiative has established. So what I'd really like to continue to do is develop what I've drawn lots of pictures of, and there's pictures on my website of, is this cross-fertilization of kaleidoscopic vocal utterances. And we're not there yet, but we're hinting at it very strongly today. And I think people can pick up on it. So the musicians that are part of this are really invested. And so they were chatting. And one of them said that this whole opera, it's like entering a world. 
You have to just go with it. Like you're entering this world of a trickster. Why don't you tell the story? A couple of the musicians, yeah, we were hanging out and I guess I was asking, which I often do, you know, do you think it's too extreme? And um, they were saying, <laughs> no, in this world that we're in with this piece, anything is possible. And once you've entered it, if you buy that you're in it, you know, if you don't, then you, you're not in it at all. It's an all or nothing switch, basically. And I thought that was uh, interesting because if you do buy that you're going into this world and the idea that once you're in it, anything is possible, that's kind of what I hope people take away from the piece when they attend it is there might be certain edges to it that are kind of risky or edgy or, you know, strange or something. But that's the price of admission for a world where anything is possible and now, you know, you make it happen. Okay, so what's going to happen tonight? We're bringing in audience. You know what? You know what's exciting for me? I don't know what's going to happen tonight. I know. <laughs> I'm really looking forward. <laughs> but that's why we invited audience, because we think we know things. Yeah. Leslie and Gusty think they know things. Exactly. Even brilliant, amazing Corey Ellison thinks she knows Our things. Our dramaturg. Yeah. Yes. I think it's going to be very interesting to hear and listen and, and to explore... The possibility. I want to see what people, like, what moments are people, like, leaning forward? When are they laughing? Oh, yeah. When are they folding their arms? Yeah, I want to be watching the audience more so than the actual workshop. Because we've heard it. Yeah. But it's always different when you have real people. Alchemy magic. Exactly. Did you say alchemy? Yeah. You I know. love that word. You're welcome. Okay, anyway, so alchemy. Yes. The audience comes in. Magic. Yes. And we don't know. We don't know. Stay tuned. I think that's the best Listen thing. in. Yeah. Listen in. Yeah. I think we're all in for a treat. You know, we've talked a lot about this piece, and I know our listeners are biting to hear more about it. Just a little it. tiny bit. Oh, just a little. And we have a sliver for you. Just kidding. No, we don't. <laughs> <laughs> You'll have to wait till next season can't for that. You, you can't hum some? No, no, no. The no, ones just have to wait. We don't have time. Yeah, okay. But we do have some audience reactions for you after this set workshop, and I think they'll give you a little more glimpse in how people felt before and how they felt after. I think we should remind our listeners that by the time they hear this podcast, the pieces continue to evolve and change. We're in the cocooning stage. Come see the butterfly in October. And I was just so amazed. It was just having your ears just fed this beautiful... 10-course meal, and everything was so new and fresh and flavorful. First of all, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out where the sounds were coming from on stage, because there were a lot of like bird sounds and animal sounds, and I couldn't tell how the musicians were making those sounds. I thought the, the multiple percussion performer was super interesting, because he seemed to be hopping all over the stage. The way these uh, jaras were eroded, you know, there was kind of blurring of uh, the boundaries between operatic singing and other forms of singing. And I think uh, she really tackled that issue very, very well and boldly and so forth. I think I caught most of it. <laughs> I did have to read the synopsis afterwards to kind of piece everything together. But there was definitely so much talent on the stage. Um, I thought that it was unique. I thought it was a little bit different than other operas. 
most operas would She'll know what be it is, like less dancing and more singing. And uh, um, this one was a lot of movement and a lot of music at the same time. It was really cool to watch. And I didn't mind that it was so long. Well, I... I really, really love Nicole's presence. Not only like her performance, but the way that her role was integrated. I love it. It's beautiful, honestly. It's beautiful. We still have some wiggle room, so I definitely think every project could use a little bit more, you know, tweak to it, you know, whatnot, um, until we get it right. But I definitely think we're on the right path. The audience brought a totally different energy to me. Just love audience. I love audience. Next time on Key Change, diversity and inclusion. Brandon told you from the very beginning how important it was to Opera Fall Voices. On our next episode, you're going to learn a little bit more why. Key Change is a production of the Santa Fe Opera in collaboration with Opera for All Voices. We are produced and edited by Andrea Klunder at the Creative Imposter Studios. Our hosts are me, Andrea Fellows-Walters, and Brandon Neal. Our audio engineer is Cabby at Cabby Sound Studios in Santa Fe. Music by Renee Orth with cover art by David Towsley. Special thanks to the Reba and David Logan Center for the Arts at the University of Chicago. Reba Caffarelli, Corey Ellison, and Aaliyah Rich for recording our audience reactions. And Shannon Harris for capturing our recording session in Chicago. This podcast is made possible due to the generous funding from the Melville Hankins Family Foundation, the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation and an Opera America Innovation Grant supported by the Anne and Gordon Getty Foundation. To learn more about Opera for All Voices, visit us at santafeopera.org. Have you ever seen Shrek? Which thing? Shrek, the movie. The cartoony? Yes, with the ogre. The, yeah, I saw the cartoony thing. He says in there, you know, it's like peeling an onion. <laughs> so many layers. <laughs> donkey. Like a, Isn't that donkey? Yeah. Yeah. We're like an onion. <laughs> Wait, is one of us a donkey in this conversation? I mean... <laughs> Your words. One of us is an ogre and one of us is a donkey. Okay. Well, if we have to choose, then I will choose donkey. Really? You're much taller than me, so <laughs> ogres are tall.